listening to KBOO Portland on 90.7 FM and streaming online at kboo.fm. Why do you love KBOO? Tell us what you most love about KBOO Community Radio, and we will use it on air during our next membership drive. Record a one-minute testimonial using the KBOO mobile app, or use a voice recording app on your phone and email it to info at kboo.org. That's info at kboo.org. Thank you. KBOO programming is made possible by KBOO member listeners and support from PDX Pendable Stage and Studio Supplies. PDX Pendable sells and rents to film and theater productions, from gel and globes to paint and lights, featuring the latest airy LED lighting. More information available at 503-887-5880 and at PDX Pendables. The following program is a special encore rebroadcast for these unique pandemic times. Dates, times, and events mentioned in the following program have already occurred and are no longer relevant. I'm Dima Roberts, stage and studio. We're listening to music by David Ornette Cherry, and you can hear his music at davidornettecherry.com. Lately, I've been featuring artists of color rather than specific events. It's a time for us to know each other and to do some reflection on the art form and how to dismantle structures of racism and bias. Today, we talk in depth with one of my favorite theater artists. I've known her since 2002, and she's joining me via Zoom right now. I welcome Shelly B. Shelley to Stage and Studio. Hey, Shelly. Hi, Dimei. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here with you. Really excited. I'm excited, too. We first met a long, long time ago, 2002, when my organization, Meteorites, created a show about grief and grieving. It was called The Grief Project. And it was also uh, an original play called The Time Between. And full disclosure, Shelley and I have been working together on another meteorites project called the ISM Project, so we do go back a long ways. A long way, and with meaningful work. It, when working with you, Demay, one of the things that I uh, don't experience, and, and I know a lot of actors will relate to this, where you're standing backstage going, why am I doing this? You know, for maybe Shakespeare for the 55th time, or you know, something that is done repeatedly and it's not relevant. Your work, media rights, is always relevant. You're never standing around wondering, why am I doing this? I know exactly why I'm doing this. I knew why I was doing Time Between, and I know why I'm doing the ISM Project. Amazing. Thank you. Well, I'm so glad because it was a long time in between those two projects. So, you know, we hope that that won't continue (laughs) with that big gap. Well, you've been in Portland and since 1987. I came to Portland in 1989. And you put yourself through college at Portland State University, and you worked at the precursor, and I remember this, of Regional Arts and Culture Council, but it was called the Metropolitan Arts Commission. The MAC, baby. MAC, (laughs) yeah. I remember my first MAC grant. That was an awesome thing. I may have had something to do with it. (laughs) Oh, 
I had nothing. I'm sure I had nothing to do with it. But you compiled a list of what they called back then ethnic minority artists and arts organizations. And I am just curious to know, how big was that list back then? Listen, when I was hired, I re- in the interview, I was told that there were not a lot of artists of color in Portland. And by then, I had been here four years as a full-time student. While at Portland State, I also was the... Um, I ran the Black Cultural Affairs Board and so brought in talent and had already started meeting artists. And um, I just knew that couldn't be true, that there were not any, you know, and so I, I took on the challenge and six months later, we had a database of over 400, over 400 artists, arts organizations, all over Oregon and Southwest Washington. And um, they were eventually turned into a directory which was distributed by arts and education. I don't know if you remember Vicki Poffin, but distributed by arts and education to the schools so that they could reach out and bring in these artists to share the art and the culture and the aesthetics of, you know, so kids had that exposure. So yeah, about 400 and that was in 91. I'm sure it's grown. Yep. Is that safe to say? I think. (laughs) I mean, because the arts have been exploding, you know, before the pandemic, you know, so it has been burgeoning and blossoming and all those terms. But I'm just wondering how the art scene compares to back then, you know, what's happening with the arts right now. The sad thing is it's about the same. When I worked for MAC, my role was um, diversity and outreach program manager. And so um, I I was responsible directly to the committee, the board, even though it was a city bureau, it had a external board. And so the board had the committees and I was responsible to the diversity committee. Um, At that time, Richard Brown, a photographer, was the uh, chair. Um, DePriest was with um, the symphony and he did a beautiful video for me. But, but my role, one of my roles was to go in and train board members and board heads on how to recruit diverse board members so that if you were the ballet and you wanted to diversify, don't just go and pick someone off the street who looks like the person you need to diversify. You know, you want to have a black person, so you go find a black person. No, you really need to do your research. If you're the ballet, you want to find that person who has a passion for the ballet. And then you've got a committed board member who understands your mission and who can affect change, not just a token on the board. Well, you know, back then they were called the the majors, you know, the larger arts organizations. And um, unfortunately, today, that was in 91, 92. Today, go look at the boards, answer for yourself. The boards are still very, very mainstream. They rotate the same people around and, you know, it's, same stuff on a different day, unfortunately. I'm so glad you mentioned James DePriest, the great James DePriest, the yes. nephew of Marian Anderson and, you know, the the first black symphony conductor at the Oregon Symphony. So I'm glad you, I, I actually um, had him or asked him to uh, host um, my first radio series that I distributed nationally. So I remember his golden voice. It was beautiful. It that was beautiful. video that that uh, he did, we actually taped in his home that, you know, up above the Mac Club. And uh, I was there and I just, it was like a, I don't, I can't even describe being in awe and trying to be professional at the same time and just fumbling and clumsy and 
just uh, absolutely in awe of where I was and who I, whose company I was in and uh, appreciated that he also was a force f for diversity in the arts here in Portland. Um, but again, you look back and you look today and there really has not been that much of a change. We change for specific situations. If a grant comes out that says, hey, we've got more money to do you know, this kind of art, well then of course everybody jumps on it to get the money, but then that's not, that's not including me, that's wearing me like a necklace. And then when season's over, you put me back on the, in the jewelry box. Well, that's, that's not okay. That's how it was. That's kind of how it is now. Well, when you talk about, you know, what it was like back then, what it is now, I mean, it took all that amount of time for the uh, Portland Opera, which just announced that their managing director and artistic director are both black artists. And so that was a long gap between De Priest and now. Exactly. And, you know, when you think, yeah, long time. And then we still have to see if they're going to be able to be effective for, you know, leaving the, the other career that I have outside of the arts, human resources in, in the public sector and private sector, and recruitment being one of my stronger arms in diversity. Well, you can recruit all day long, but the, the key in the, in the, uh, of your labor is in the retention. So you can bring all of the people onto your staff that you want to of color, but if you do not retain them because you are not culturally sensitive and culturally aware enough that they want to stay with you, then that again is, you know, wasted time and effort. And you end up spinning your wheels and staying in that same place and blaming this, the process as opposed to looking at what happened that that person that we just invested in walked away. Um, so yeah, let's hope that they stay. And I hope that they have an influence, like for instance, at Portland Opera, not to ever do the Mikado or Madame Butterfly ever again, oh you oh know, and I'm sure yes. you have your list too of what not to do. I do. What not to do. Yeah. Yeah. And hopefully, you know, it, it's unfortunate. We would hope that we wouldn't have to present them with a list. We would hope that they would just know, don't do that. That's, that's, you know, don't do that. It's not good. It's, it's, but again, having the people there on the staff, on the board, who can look at it with a different set of filters and say, um, no, we're not doing that. That's important. In case you just joined us, I'm Dime Roberts, stage and studio, talking with theater artist Shelley B. Shelley. And if you missed any of this show, you can hear it again at stageandstudio.org or kboo.fm slash stage and studio. I really don't know where you grew, grew up, and I ha I've been meaning to ask you, so I'm asking you now. Where did you grow up? I grew up in inner city Cleveland, Ohio. In the, um, I'm, I'm kind of a 60s kid. Uh, we actually sat on the porch um, in the summer of 1966, just a couple of miles over from the Huff Riots. And at night, my brother and I would sit on the porch with my parents and the dog, and watch the sky turn orange um, during those riots. Um, so it, it was, it's very interesting to have come from that, knowing that as a kid. And, and again, being here now, watching the exact same situation, you know, when does, when does it happen? When does it stop? When do things change? But yeah, Cleveland, Ohio, my um, kindergarten and preschool was at the Caramu House Theater, which is, a nationally known black theater, one of the first black theaters. I went to preschool there. I did some summer programs there and my first professional stage production was there. So uh, yeah, 
I'm, I'm uh, Cleveland, born in Canton, Ohio, but raised in Cleveland. And that's when you decided you, at a very young age, you wanted to do theater, to be an actor. I did. You know, I did my first stage production in middle school. I uh, received a scholarship to go to a private boarding school in Cleveland, all-girls school, Willoughby, Ohio. And uh, they had a theater arts program. The uh, theater teacher was married to the music teacher, the, the Mr. and Mrs. Savage. And I did my first play, and I have been in love ever since seventh grade. So, yeah. Yeah, I, I can understand that. And so, well, this is a tough question. Have you ever been typecast? And what we mean by typecast is played something that was um, either borderline or totally stereotypical. Yes, I have. And some of it is typecast. Some of it is things just fit differently, if that makes sense. So um, I wouldn't say I've been typecast in a negative way, but there are some roles that tend to be more um, nurturing, more, um, you know, uh, earthy kind of roles that, you know, I just tend to be able to sink my teeth into those roles. And I think it's not so much that it's typecasting, it's me. I've, I've walked, I've picked up a script and went, okay, who peaked? <laughs> Somebody was, you know, spying on me and wrote it down. Or I've read a script and said, I have to do this, that, you know, or, or the other way, you read a script and think, okay, no, I could never. So places where I've read a script and just felt like that was me and I've been cast, is it typecasting or is it, you know, a good fit? Though I have seen some situations where a person is placed in a role because they are the black person and they are expected to perform a particular way as opposed to being organic who they are, there is a perception of what they should be or how they should be portrayed. I haven't experienced that too much, but I've, you know, you, there are situations, especially in mainstream theater in Portland, where as a person of color, I did a show where I was, I was, truly coached by a white female on how to speak black vernacular. You do the math on that. I mean, I just told you where I'm from. I'm from inner city Cleveland. This is how people in the inner city of Cleveland speak. I think I know this person and I was coached to be more Asian. So, yeah. <laughs> so, so there's things like that that just are so cringeworthy. Yeah. And it all falls into that basket It, it um, where if you have people on your staff and people on your board with different set of filters, those kinds of insults don't happen because that's an insult. It is an insult. I just want to say that the last time that we uh, that you were on stage in studio, you were performing in Skeleton Crew at Artist Rep and that role as a factory worker really fit you like a glove. So I know what you mean when you say some things just fit, you know? And also, I have to do a shout out for Bag and Baggage, and you were in a version of an adaptation of The Winter's Tale as Hermione, you know, but set yes. in Cuba, you know, so it was awesome to see that too. And what's interesting about that is therein lies the difference in doing something and meaning something. Yes, there was, there was funds out there for problem plays. Absolutely there was. Bag and baggage, Shakespeare is their thing, and taking it outside of the box is, you know, what they do, and it's exciting. So they could have just taken the money and and done a problem play mainstream or whatever, but they didn't. They 
did the outreach. I think they did an RFP, but they got the scripts in. And when they when they landed on the one that I had the opportunity to do, the Island Winter, Carlos, this young Cuban man who actually graduated from high school the year before my granddaughter. Oh my gosh, you want to be humbled. Um, young people are brilliant. Don't get it twisted, old folks. Um, but they didn't just have him write this piece. They worked with him and then he was there and he worked with us. And I am, I don't have a Cuban background. I had the Afro, but I don't, I'm not Afro-Cuban. But as an Afro-American, it was real important to me that I represent Afro-Cuban with integrity. And I was able to do that because of the commitment from Bag and Baggage. They didn't just bring in someone who says, okay, well, I speak Spanish. They brought in Cubans, <laughs> you know. I was side by side with Freyla, who is Cuban. She's a Cuban dancer. She's a Cuban orisha. And, and she taught me the culture, not just the, you know, um, the words I was saying, but I was interested in the inflection and how would I say it? And she picked up, we had a very similar attitude and she gave me sass where it was supposed to be. Um, the audience, the, the, the involvement was so amazing. I felt very comfortable. I felt very at home and I felt very welcomed, not tolerated or brought in for something, you know. And even during this pandemic, if, if you've had an opportunity to look at uh, Bag and Baggage, the sequestered soliloquies, all of them have included artists of color because that's who they are. And I don't think that they have necessarily a diverse board or staff. They have a mindset of inclusion. They have a mindset of what is right and how to do it. And where they don't know, they have a mindset to go out and find someone to help them figure it out. Uh, and that is respectable. And I think that is the heart of what inclusion means. It doesn't mean that you're invited into the house and treated like you don't belong there. It means that you're invited into the house and you are welcomed, you are listened to, and you are respected, and that your opinion does count. And it means that things will probably change because you're there. Because if, you know, when you, come, you bring all of who you are, you know, I've, I've been sharing with my daughter recently who, um, you know, it's, it's, she's also my housemate. And so we've had a lot of time to spend together during this pandemic. And uh, we talked about, uh, she was sharing with me about the pieces of ourselves that we cut off to fit into whatever it is. And then, you know, how we are both at different stages in our lives of trying to recover those pieces. Um, you know, you have to cut off pieces. And so inclusion, like you said, if you're including me, don't ask me to cut off pieces of myself to be part. Include all of my pieces and make room for me. Yeah. Well, I also want to uh, mention, you know, it was fun seeing you in Grimm. You were in two uh, episodes of that TV show. So it's always fun to see that. But one of the, the things that I also want to talk about is... Yeah, so we were talking about inclusion, and I, I think that it is important to say that when artists of color walk into any, you know, art situation, I don't care what it is, if it's a rehearsal or if it's, you know, filming or if it's, you know, doing, um, you know, visual art, you know, for a group of people, there's there are specific challenges that you you just can't leave behind from the real world. And so I think that's another thing that's in these conversations I've been having with people that 
you know, that expectation that you leave it at the door is to me an expectation of privilege because I don't think that you can when something happens to you, like just in your own neighborhood, your own home, or just walking into the space. Exactly. It's, um, it makes me think, you know, even, even as a black woman, one of the concerns going onto a, a film set is always hair and makeup. So 20 some odd years ago, going to, you know, driving down to, to Salem or to do orcas, or I think they were more in Eugene, actually. But anyway, driving to an orca set, I would have all of my makeup. I'd have every shade that I wear from whatever time of the year to the other. I'd have all different kinds of powders um, because I knew that the makeup artist wasn't going to have it. I'd have lipstick. I'd have everything that, you know, you normally would not have to take. You just show up with a clean face. I never would show up with a clean face. I'd always put on my foundation first so I wouldn't, you know, look funny. By the time I did Grimm, it was very different. I still didn't show up with a clean face. I still had on foundation, but by then I had been on the sets enough and Portland's artist had evolved enough, the, the makeup artist had evolved enough and, and learned enough that I felt comfortable as a black woman allowing them to put the makeup on my face, allowing them to, to, you know, style my hair. But it was a process and it was one of, you know, working with people over time. Some of the, sometimes the same people and you'd recognize them and they'd say, hey, how did that, you know, product work for you? You know, oh, that was wonderful, thank you. And by the way, how did you feel about this? And so, you know, I found myself exchanging ideas with makeup artists who were not, you know, black women but who were really, really sincere, trying to learn how to put makeup, apply makeup to my face, how to make sure that I looked my best on that camera. And um, there's something to be said for that. You know, I have a lot of uh, appreciation, gratitude for um, those working in, in makeup, because that's a big issue for me as a black woman going on a set. And also how to light black actors, you know, or black performers how to light the, yeah, lighting, the lighting yes. and also yes. you know just I, I feel like evolution happens in a lot of small ways you know incremental changes lead to big change overall and just OSF Oregon Shakespeare Festival I think it was about two or three years ago finally hired a black wig maker you know wow, and yes. so so that makes a difference too huge difference um, and it's those small things like you said you can't leave those things at the door. I deal with those things on a day-to-day -day basis where people, you know, I, I happen to wear my hair in locks now. This is, you know, natural how my hair grows, but people still want to know about my hair. You know, how did you get your hair like that? Do you wash it? You know, of course I wash it. You know, I mean, it's on my head, come on. But some of you those kinds of questions. You if you wash your hair? Oh, absolutely. Ask any person with locks. Ask, well, you know people with locks, ask them. They, we get that all the time. How do you wash it? Do you wash your hair or do you just like take it out to wash it? It's just, you know, and again, if you don't know, you don't know. But those are the kinds of situations we deal with before we go to the set. So then we show up and it's like, what is this person who's going to do my hair, who's going to do my makeup think? I don't want to run out of time because I know you have a project that you've, you're just in the beginning stages of fundraising for, and this is your dream project. 
Can you tell us about the Africa Project? Yes, I can. So about a year ago, I just felt compelled to pull the Black artist of Portland, the Black diaspora artist, together. And, and I don't, I, at that time, I didn't know where it was going, but I just knew that there were, I, I had this pull and, and we came together. There were about 40 of us and, you know, there, there were activities that we were going to do to be supportive of each other, curating each other, counseling each other. And then the pandemic hit and none of those things has happened. But what has happened and started happening for me before the pandemic was more clarity on on what my pool actually is. And my pool is one of putting my feet on the soil that my ancestors walked on. I I think I shared I shared with others that I want to be kind of a Harriet Tubman of this time, where not only do I place my feet, but Harriet Tubman, I realized free 300, she was responsible for three, freeing 300 slaves, say that three times fast. She was responsible for freeing 300 slaves. I would like to be responsible for getting 300 black Americans from this soil to the soil that their ancestors' feet touched. Not necessarily to, to repatriate, but to, to go. Um, there are some times when it just hurts me to my core. I can feel, it, it almost feels like my, my heart bleeds when I hear a white person talk about a visit to Africa, to any, na any nation. I don't care if it's South Africa, if it's you know Ethiopia, if it's uh, Tanzania, if it's Ghana. So many European Americans are able to travel to Africa for folly. I need to go, you know, it's, it's not folly. That is my, that, I, there's, there's a piece of me, when we talk about those pieces cut off, there's a piece of me that I've never had. So I'm trying to get there. I, I started the GoFundMe on uh, Facebook and, of, and people actually started um, contributing and then a, the, the lockdown. But, uh, and right now, Ghana's borders are closed to um, Americans. However, uh, the trip is still scheduled for uh, the end of December, and I am hoping that uh, I will be well and the borders will be open and I can go. Uh, it is two weeks of um, going into Ghana and visiting everything from uh, the castles and the point of no return and the baths, and um, but then also traveling up into northern Ghana and seeing other areas and meeting communities of expatriates from America who have developed communities in Ghana and are saying, hey, come and be part of this, whether it's for economic exchange or whether it's for actual, you know, moving. But that is the draw for me. It's almost like um, a pull from, you know, I, I shared with you, it's, it's like uh, the Langston Hughes poem, you know, um, my soul has grown deep like a river. It, it's so deep, it, it's hard to even put into words. Could you just read the poem for us? I would love to. Okay, it's, it's a short one. I'm gonna let's see what I can do. I've known rivers. I've known rivers ancient as the world and older than the flow of human blood in human veins. My soul has grown deep like the rivers. I bathed in the Euphrates when dawns were young. I built my hut near the Congo and it lulled me to sleep. I looked upon the Nile and raised the pyramids above it. 
I heard the singing of the Mississippi when Abe Lincoln went down to New Orleans, and I've seen its muddy bosom turn all golden in the sunset. I've known rivers, ancient, dusky rivers. My soul has grown deep like the rivers. That's beautiful, Shelley. I've included the link to your GoFundMe at stageandstudio.org and, and kboo.fm slash stageandstudio. Thank you for this time today. It was so good to talk with you via Zoom. Shelly B. Shelley, always a pleasure and always a joy to work with you. Thank you so much, Demay, and I'm looking forward to more and more opportunities. Oh. And good luck with even more pandemic recordings. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> <laughs> we always have Zoom, Shelley. <laughs> right? <laughs> That's it for Stage and Studio. Hear the show again at stageandstudio.org or kboo.fm slash stageandstudio. Again, I have the GoFundMe link um, on both those pages. And you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, like us on facebook.com slash stage, the letter N, studio. And so I'm going out, Shelly. Thank you so much. Thank you. We'll talk soon. Till next time, I'm D. May Roberts. I'm going to go out with some music by David Arnett Cherry at davidarnettcherry.com. Thank you.